Well, I want to set the scene for you. I need you to imagine it in your mind's eye. I'm in seminary, and I'm meeting with my accountability group. We are at a Denny's. It's 5.30 in the morning, very early, and we've been very faithful to meet together throughout our time at seminary. Uh, We are there to talk about our lives, to pray, uh, uh, and to to prepare for ministry and, and go about that very seriously. Um, as we're there one morning, though, uh, we just keep getting distracted. Something uh, in the corner of our eye, a group of people, they're just kind of loud and boisterous and odd, and, and it's hard to pay attention. And so finally, you know, we're trying not to stare, but I look over, and who's there? None other than Bertie Madoff. The, the largest Ponzi scheme in all of American history, uh, ripped off tons and tons and tons of people, some like $64 billion, I think, that he cheated people out of. He was there. It was strange. Next to him was um, Kermit uh, Gosnell. You may know Kermit Gosnell. He's the abortion provider who took three live babies' lives. Uh, He was there. Uh, Next to them was this uh, heroin addict. Uh, She was about 25. Uh... Young, her three kids that she's had uh, services took away because she couldn't, she couldn't take care of them. And, and I, I could believe it because she could barely get the spoon from the plate to her mouth. She was shaking so bad. Uh, and then next to, next to her, there was Danny Owens. Danny Owens is known as the strip king in Memphis because he um, used to run and rule uh, all the strip clubs in Memphis. He was actually served much time just right up the road in Lompoc because of the um, prostitution rings that were going on there and the, the drug dealers and, and uh, the drug deals. And so he was there. And if you think that's shocking, the most shocking part about it is I looked over and right there at the head of the table was Jesus. My friends and I, we couldn't believe our eyes. What's Jesus doing with them? Someone finally actually said what we were all thinking. Why is Jesus eating with them? And we were shocked. If you've got that image in your head, then you have a good picture of what's going on. In Mark chapter 2, Verses 15 through 17. Jesus is there reclining at a dinner party, and there are the scribes of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and they are looking on. And the Pharisees, you have to understand, they were the religious elite. They were the political conservatives. They were very popular. They were great missionaries. They would go to the ends of the earth to make a convert. They were very serious about God and his laws and that people lived according to them. And as they're there looking on at this dinner party, they ask this question, a very important question in verse 16. Why does he eat? Why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Tax collectors. Uh, a tax collector was a very, um, that job was, was, uh, was really despised in that day. Not because it was menial, but because it was 
well, it was extortionist. See, tax collectors through bribes and extortion and pressure would rip off their own people. They would take taxes and then they would get paid. It was a very lucrative profession because they would skim off the top. And so they were profiteers. And they had the support of the uh, government behind them so they could do really whatever they wanted. But they weren't just profiteers. They were also opportunistic traders. You see, they worked for Rome. Rome, the evil empire. The evil empire that had colonized the Jews at the time. And they were taking taxes for the Roman government. During World War II, the Nazi party set up these Jewish councils. There were municipal administrations that would make sure that Nazi rule was being followed in the Jewish ghettos. And they would have to enact, they would have to enact the, uh, the Nazis rule even to the point of rounding up and deporting fellow Jews. So these were Jews working for the Nazis who were actually taking their fellow citizens and they would deport them. Some resisted. Many did. Others did not. They thought, well, if, if we resist, we'll get killed because that's what the other people have done. B- being a tax collector in the ancient Israel was akin to being on the administrative council in one of these Jew- Jewish ghettos, with one significant difference. Tax collectors weren't forced into the job. They actually paid top dollar to get the job. It went to the highest bidder. And so they were bidding money to extort and to oppress their own people. So you can see why it wasn't a very light profession. It ranks somewhere right along the lines of prostitution. Why is Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners? To be called a sinner in that day was not to say that someone committed a sin. Now, all Jews believe that people committed sins. They all believe that they committed sins. Pharisees believe that they committed sins. That's why they had a sacrificial system. They believed that they could be forgiven of those sins if they did the right rituals. No, to be labeled a sinner was to say that you were of a category of people that was so socially and morally at sea that there was no hope for you and no hope of reform. You were a social and moral outcast, categorically labeled sinner, unredeemable, irreparable. And who were sinners? Sinners were people who did dirty jobs, like pig farmers, tax collectors. Sinners were people who did immoral things, like lying and adultery. Sinners were people who, did, um, who didn't adhere to the religious traditions of the day. And sinners were people who were of a dirty race like Samaritans and Gentiles. Outcast, 
marginalized, irredeemable. In other words, Jesus' dinner party guest that day would look a lot like the scene that I described earlier. There would be the stripper from down the street, the white supremacist, the meth addict, the arms dealer, the loan shark, the young man with AIDS, and the Ponzi scheme profiteer. What is Jesus doing eating with these people? I mean, doesn't he know the wisdom of the ages? Doesn't he know uh, what the Greek poet Menander said, that bad company corrupts good morals? Doesn't he know what we have learned when we were in youth group, that it's easier to pull someone down than to lift someone up? Doesn't he know what your grandmother told you since you were a little child, that if you lay down with dogs, you're bound to catch some fleas? Doesn't he know these things? And doesn't he know Psalm 1, that the blessed man is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the place of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. Doesn't he know these things? What is he doing? Why is Jesus spending his time with people that most of us spend our entire lives trying to avoid? Most of us carefully calculate how we can avoid them today. Why is he spending his time with them? Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners, especially considering what eating meant in his day? There's an ancient proverb that, ancient Near Eastern proverb that goes like this, I saw them eating and I knew who they were. I saw them eating, and I knew who they were. You see, in Jesus' day, what you ate and who you ate with said a lot about you. It was about identity. Jesus, eating in Jesus' day, or eating in the ancient, ancient world, uh, it was, well, it was kind of like your middle school lunchroom or high school lunchroom. Cast your mind's eye back there to the various cliques and groups and the lines that you don't cross and the places where you try to sit all huddled around various tables. There's the people that are the members of the band over here and the football players over here and the folks that are into golf over here. And, and then there are the good students over here that are on student council. They're, they're all separated out and they're saying, we identify with one another. We are like one another. We accept and embrace one another. Why is Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners? Does he not know the message that he's sending? I mean, does he not know that he, it's as if he's saying that, that the kingdom of God is for tax collectors and sinners because he did go around proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. 
Did he not know that, that he was saying that, that he accepted people like tax collectors and sinners and that they were acceptable to God? Did he not know? What is he doing? I mean, and especially considering in the Pharisees' mind, you have to understand, they're the very problem. The reason why God has delayed in fulfilling his long-expected promise of coming and making things right is because he, a holy God, cannot come into a land that is defiled with tax collectors and sinners. So what is he doing? They're the problem. They're the people that the land needs to be expunged of so that God will come and rescue the Jews from the Romans. Does he not know what kind of message he's sending? So why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because he is sending a message. And the message that he is sending is that this is precisely who the kingdom of God is for. And the whole reason I came was to prepare them for the kingdom of God. Look, he says it in verse 17. When Jesus heard it, that is the Pharisees' questions, he, question, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is saying, I'm a doctor, and I came to heal. I'm a savior and I came to save. I'm a rescuer and I came to rescue. That's my whole reason for being. That's the whole reason I came. I came to save sinners. Now sin in our day gets a bad rap. It's one of the most crucial and important and load-bearing doctrines in the whole Christian system. None of Christianity will make sense without a doctrine of sin. But the doctrine of sin, the idea about sin, the Christian truth about sin, is probably the hardest for us moderns to understand and appreciate. I I think that's because when we hear sin, we hear, you know, people, and, and sin, by the way, in the Christian understanding, just Christianity 101, sin is not particularly like, certain things you do, like breaking a law or something like that. Those are sins, but sin is actually talking about a condition under which humans exist. And that condition is that we are fundamentally at a very um, deep nature flawed, right? And it affects everything that we do, and it's why the world is off kilter. And, uh, and when you say that, that people are fundamentally flawed, and one of that flaws is that they're turned in on themselves, that is, they're selfish, and that everything they do is really directed towards self-serving purposes, then, um, well, people hear that, and I think people hear that today, and they think, well, what you're saying is that people are bad, and that they should be judged and not have compassion upon. I think that's a misunderstanding, I'll try to say, of the the outworking of sin or the conclusion. They're drawing a, long, a, a wrong conclusion. But, but I think that even though we've done away with sin, I would suggest to you that sin is everywhere around us. We just rename it. Let me give you a couple examples that I heard recently. Um, 
from the psycho uh, psychological world, we talk about cognitive biases. Right? A cognitive bias is basically when you make a less than rational decision because it supports your own interest or aims. It's really adaptive. So, for instance, you're in a hopeless state, but you hold out hope, even though it's totally hopeless, because that allows you to survive and keep going. So we make these less than rational decisions out of uh, personal self-interest, and they're adaptive. And this can break down in in lots of different ways. Like, for instance, um, one way that it can, can work out is the fundamental attribution error. The fundamental attribution error is basically this. Uh, when I explain it, you, you'll get it. It's when we have a tendency to, when, when successes come in our life, we tend to attribute that to our own effort. And when successes don't come in our life, we contri- tend to, contribute that to, uh, to attribute that to outside factors. Right? So, I don't get a promotion. And, well, th- that's just the system. I-, I was at a disadvantage. I haven't been looked upon rightly. I get a promotion. Well, I worked hard. And I've done this good stuff. Uh, the interesting thing is, is that the fundamental attribution, that's the fundamental attribution um, bias. And the interesting thing is that we tend to look at ourselves that way, but we look at other people right the opposite. So, for instance, if, um, if, Steve, if Steve gets the promotion, then, well, that was just some luck. And if he doesn't get the promotion, well, we all know Steve's kind of lazy and not that smart. And we all do this. It's called the fundamental attribution uh, bias. It used to be called sin. That's what it is. I mean, these are these are sins. Uh, another way in which we've relabeled sin is, I think, the medicalization of emotional anguish. I, I want to be really clear here. Um, Medicine has helped us a great deal to deal with the suffering that we experience, especially anxiety, depression, despair, things like that. And some of you, and we all, I suffer from a great deal of anxiety. During the Reformation period, that was all seen as a symptom and definitive proof that our human condition that we exist in is one marked by sin. And it used to be that, that actually you would, you know, if you felt overwhelming guilt, you would talk to a priest. And now we do mindfulness therapy. I think mindfulness therapy can be very helpful and important for helping people deal with the guilt that they face and experience. But, but is that it? And I think it's helpful to note the neuro- neurological damage in our mind that living in a fallen world has caused. But it used to be that we would also talk about guilt and anxiety and depression in terms of, well, sin. Because our anxiety often comes, or our despair comes the fact that we don't think that we can do it. But that means that we're trusting in ourselves that we have to do it. 
I mean, so many of my problems in life, my serious problems like my inability to sleep at night, which I don't do well at at all, the reason I toss and turn and wake up at 5 a.m., so much of that would be relieved if I could just get over my pride of thinking that the world depends on me. We used to call it sin, but it's all around. We just renamed it. But here's what this means. Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous but sinners. It's not the well who are in need of a physician, but those who are sick. So here's what this means. If you were here this morning, and you suffer under self-inflicted neurological, pathological addictions and habits and ways of being that you don't feel like you're in control of, if you feel enslaved, if you feel addicted, if you feel like you need a physician and you don't have the money to pay, I have good news for you. Jesus came for people just like that. Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to save the full-time working mom who feels guilty yet again because she put on another fast food meal. Jesus came to save the full-time stay-at-home mom who put on another door of the explorer so she could just get some peace and quiet. Jesus came to save the inattentive workaholic father who comes home and is so taken up that he realizes his, his kids aren't getting the attention he needs, but he just can't stop checking his email. Oh, that's me. Jesus came to save sinners. And this is good news. So do you need a physician? Do you need a savior? Do you need redemption? If you do, this is good news. Or do you feel okay? Do you feel like you're doing pretty well? Do you feel like all things considered, things aren't that bad? Well then, Jesus won't appeal to you very much. Jesus says he won't appeal to you very much. Verse 17, those who are well have no need of a physician. And it's not simply that Jesus won't appeal to you. It's actually starker. He didn't come for you. I came not to call the righteous. And that's sober. And that's scary. But it's also really sad. Because it means that you're going to miss the party. Don't forget that Jesus is here at a party. He's reclining at a table and many tax collectors and sinners are there. 
They're enjoying the party. They're enjoying Jesus. They're enjoying the meal. But the scribes of the Pharisees, they're on the outside looking in. So, who do you think's having more fun that time, that night? Do you think it's the sinners who have found love and acceptance, or do you think it's the religious elite who have found yet another scruple to argue about? Which would you rather be in? When I was, um, when I was young, so I have never had a broken bone in my whole life, which is kind of crazy. I've got lots of problems with my body, but I've never had a broken bone in my whole life. But you know, in many ways, that's a blessing. But I didn't always think that was a blessing, you know. Because when kids would get broken bones, they got this thing that they wrapped around their arm. It's called a cast. And casts were so cool because you could get, like, bright neon colors, and people would come, and they would greet you in the hospital, and they would sign it. And you would get all these notes. And then when it was done, you may even have a party where you take off the cast and the cast is there. And yay, my arm is free and you have a party. And I never got a cast opening party because I never had a broken bone. Because I wasn't sick. And I used to envy those sick folks. I used to envy those broken folks because, well, they had... They had the party. They had the community. You know, Jesus is saying that in order to get into this party, you've got to be broken. You've got to be sick. And if you're not, then you're on the outside. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that there's a great lostness to not being lost. There's a great sickness to not being sick. There's a great badness to not being bad. You know about Aunt Elsie? Aunt Elsie lived on uh, the Mississippi Gulf Coast, and she was a pillar of the church. She was at every Bible study every week. She studied. She prayed. She was, uh, she was helping out, um, volunteering all the time. And, and something else that's really interesting about Aunt Elsie Aunt Elsie hated the doctor, hated the doctor, like she would never go to the doctor, which was okay because coincidentally, Aunt Elsie was never sick ever in her life. Like the last 25 years of her life, she was never sick. So she would get up one day and, uh, and she might sneeze, but it was just allergies. And she might have a really bad cough, but it was just something that she ate. Because Aunt Elsie, she was never sick. She was never sick. In fact, one day, she prematurely died, never sick. When she wasn't sick, Aunt Elsie prematurely died. And do you know what Aunt Elsie's greatest sickness was? That she was never sick. That she was never sick. And that's sad. This, Jesus said that, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That there's a great lostness to not being lost. There's a great sickness to not being sick. But not just sickness, sadness. If you're a Christian here, I want you to think about something. 
Think about the time in your life when you've experienced the most joy, the most freedom, the most celebration, when life seemed lightest. You know when it was? Wasn't it when you fell flat on your face? When you failed completely? And when you realized you had nothing but Jesus? And Jesus was enough? Isn't that when you felt the most joy? The most life? That's in my life when I have. It's when I realize that I'm a complete failure. And guess what? It's okay. Jesus loves me anyway. My future is secure. Things are going to be all right. When I realize that if I never had another success in my whole life, life would be good. Life would be great. Because I had him. See, a Christian is someone who comes to God with nothing but Jesus and their sin. And when you do that, it is full of joy. But if you try to come to God with anything besides Jesus and sin, it will steal your joy. And it will dampen your party. And some of you, your joy is gone. We're in here. Every week. And it's a party. And I look out at you. And you can't smile. And you can't open up your arms. And you can't dance. And you can't sing. Can I ask you a question? What are you bringing to God besides your sin in Jesus? Because whatever it is, It's stealing your joy. It's killing your party. And I want you to come in. Because that's sad. That is sad. Why are sinners eating with Jesus? Or why is Jesus eating with sinners? Because Jesus came to save sinners. And to give them deep joy. But why are sinners eating with Jesus? That's another question that's interesting. I mean, we know why Jesus is eating with sinners, but why are sinners eating with Jesus? Well, I think we get some insight in this when we look at the story of Levi in verse 14. Levi, you know him better as Matthew, after whom the first book of the, Bible, the New Testament was written or named. Uh, Levi is, is there sitting at a toll booth, you know the kind, like when you're going into the Bay Area and you take the wrong road and then you have to pull over and you're scrounging for dollars to put into the machine and they're like, we don't have change. You're like, I only have a 20. Awesome. Uh, that's what Levi is doing. He's sitting uh, by the lake between two regions and if you pass from one region to the next or back and forth, you had to pay your taxes, taxes on fishing, and all the rest. And Jesus is passing between those two regions. And verse 14 says, As he passed by, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and said to him, Follow me. And he, that is Levi, rose and followed him. Why did Levi get up and follow Jesus that day? I think it's because someone finally saw him. Like, really saw him. 
not for what he did, not as a tax collector, but as Levi. The text says in verse 14 that Jesus saw Levi. And you got to wonder how many people passed by. And they spit at him. And they cursed him. But they didn't see him. He was just a tax collector. Jesus saw Levi and he sees you too. He doesn't see all the stuff that you've done and all the sin, though he knows that. But he sees something deeper at the core of who you are. He sees you as image of God, good, made for a relationship with God, with a soul that has a capacity to bear glory. He sees you as he created you to be. He saw Levi, and not only did he see Levi, he calls Levi, follow me. You know, I wonder when the last time Levi felt loved or desired or pursued in his life was. You know, it's a wonderful thing to be desired. It's a wonderful thing to feel pursued. Until you start wondering if someone's pursuing you for what you can offer them. And then it doesn't feel so wonderful anymore. Then it kind of feels icky. But you also need it, and so you keep doing it, right? But Jesus, what did Levi have to offer him? He desires Levi because he loved him. Because he wanted a relationship with him. Not because of what he could get from him, but because he wanted to be with him, follow me. And I'm going to go hang out at your house and we're going to have a meal together. And Jesus, he wants a relationship with you too and he desires you too and he pursues you too. Have you ever been pursued like that? Have you ever been loved like that? Have you ever been desired like that? Because if you have that kind of love, that kind of desire, you know, that'll get you to the party. Because that is the party. That is the party. To be seen fully for who you are and known and loved at the core of your being. Not for what you can give, not because you can serve God, but because he wants to be with you and love you. But it's not just Levi. It gets Levi to the party, but it's not just Levi who's at the party. Verse 15 says that many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus. And why are they there? You know why I think they're there? I think they're there. We don't hear about Jesus calling them. I think they're there because Levi was there. And they knew Levi. And they knew his reputation. And they must have thought to themselves, wait a second. If Jesus takes on disciples like that, if Jesus is okay with people like that, then then that means that he's for me too. Then I can be one of his disciples too. You see, they realized that, that Levi could empathize with them and they could empathize with Levi. And in that empathy, they could actually find Jesus who called Levi. When the world looks on the church, 
Do they see needy sinners? Do they recognize that we are needy sinners? And do they recognize that we recognize that we are needy sinners? See, I'm not sure they do. Philip Yancey says that he often, the author, he says that when he's in an airplane, he often asks someone, what do you think about Bible-believing Christians? He said, almost without exception, the answer is always, they're judgmental, they're condemning, they're arrogant. That's what people look on, and that's what they see. And what about the church? When it looks outside itself, when it looks at the world, what does it see? When the church looks at the world, do Christians see fellow sinners, strugglers, addicts, who like us and as deep as us need rescue, need the grace of God, who are all suffering under this condition called sin? which we're actually responsible for and we suffer from because we're responsible because we actually do things that harm people and we're also enslaved and so it's not really so much about choices. Does the church look on the world that way? After the 9-11 bombing, one very prominent church member got on TV and said, if you are a homosexual, a member of the ACLU, in favor of abortion, a part of the people of the American way, then I point my finger in your face and say, you did this. You made this happen. Now that's one extreme example of what I'm sad to say that I think I find in my own heart. And if you're honest, I think that you probably find in your heart as well. That, that this is actually why we have such a hard time making and sustaining relationships with non-Christians. And we don't like relationships with non-Christians and we avoid them because we don't really empathize with them. They're just so different than us. We're not fellow sinners who need a Savior. That's why some of us are really not that good at evangelism. That's why I'm not so good at evangelism because I live under the law. The condemning purpose, the, condemn, the condemnation of the law that I have to do in order to live. And because I live under that, I put other people under that burden too. And when I do that, it, what ends up being competitive and judgy and, well, people don't usually like that. It's not, it's not the most welcoming thing. But when those in the church recognize their need... And recognize that they have the same need as the world does. That actually, you know, depravity comes in all forms, in all ways. 
And there's high-class depravity and low-class depravity and middle-class depravity and socially acceptable depravity and unsocially acceptable depravity. But when you realize that like, it actually gets spread out evenly amongst humanity, then it can help you be actually empathetic and to engage. If the church started to recognize that, then like those tax collectors and sinners... They would come to the party. Tony Campolo is an author, speaker, and he tells a story. Uh, he's a sociologist, Christian sociologist. He tells a story about being in Hawaii. And he's there and he's jet lagged and he can't sleep and he's hungry. And so he goes out one night at 3 a.m. He wanders across the only diner that he can find that's open and he goes in and he he looks and he sees a donut. He asks for a donut. The guy behind the counter's name is Harry. Harry um, wipes his hands off on this kind of greasy uh, um, apron and then grabs the donut, gives it to Tony Campola and a coffee. Uh, so he's sitting there. He's not as hungry anymore. And then all of a sudden, these women walk in. They're clearly getting off their shift as they're lewdly dressed and very loud. Um, one of them, her name is Agnes, says to another gal, uh, tomorrow's my birthday. Uh, her friend says to her, why are you telling me that? What do you want me to do, throw you a party, make you a cake? She's like, no, I, I wouldn't expect a party or a cake. I mean, come on, I'm just, just saying it's my birthday. It's not like I have a party or a cake. I've never had a birthday party in my life. Well, Tony Campoli heard that, and when they left, he asked Harry, he said, do those women come in here every night? He said, yep, every night. Not when Agnes, she comes in, yep, every night. 3.30, 3.30 on the dime. Well, what do you say we throw, him a bir- throw Agnes a birthday party tomorrow? Tomorrow's her birthday. Okay. So, Tony Campola says, I'll get the cake and you decorate. And Harry says, no, the cake is mine. And so then to- Tony Campola has to go to-, to Kmart and get, like, glitter and confetti, which uh, wasn't his forte, but... He comes at 2.30, and he sets up, and there's a big sign, Happy Birthday, Agnes. And, and Harry, he had gotten the word out, and so the, the diner is lined with prostitutes. Standing room only. And Agnes comes in at 3.30, and they say, Happy Birthday, Agnes. And she's just shocked, flabbergasted. And they bring out this cake with candles lit, and she starts crying, and then Finally, she works her way through it, and then she says, do, do we have to cut it now? Do we have to eat it now? Harry's like, well, it's your cake. It's your birthday. You can do whatever you want with it. She's like, I just, I need to go. I want to show it to my mother. She lives two doors down. So she leaves. She says, I'll be right back. I'll be right back. And so I said, okay. So Agnes goes out the door, and then there's Tony Campola, Harry, in a restaurant full of prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. And he's like, talk about awkward. This is awkward. So what do I do? So, um, you know, what you do in any awkward moment like that, you say, how about we pray? And so we started to pray. He's like, I didn't know what else to do. And he prayed for Agnes. And he prayed that God would heal her. And he prayed for her salvation. And he prayed that she would know her worth and value in spite of all the things that had been done to her from what must have been a very early age. And then he said, amen. And Harry looks at him and he says, hey, you said you were a sociologist. It sounds like you're a preacher. 
what kind of church are you a part of? And, Her- and uh, Tony Campolo, in like a moment of brilliance, must have been the spirit, says to him, well, I- I'm from the type of church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3 a.m. in the morning. And Harry says, no. No, you're not part of a church like that because you're in a church like that. If there was a church like that, I would come. And wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all? Isn't that the kind of church that you want to be a part of? You know, that is the kind of church that Jesus came to establish. You know, we can be that church. You know, in many ways we are doing that church. You know, that's what First Thursday is all about. It's throwing a party for people, for the town, with no conditions, no if, ands, or buts, no we'll bait and switch, no not for what they can give us or we can get from them or how many like sign-ups we can have or I have decided cards that can fill out. It's a party because we were welcomed. No if, ands, or buts. You know, we can change Santa Barbara by the meals we eat. And they saw them eating and they knew who they were. We could transform Santa Barbara simply by the meals we eat and who we meet, eat with. But first, but first we have to join the party ourselves. But first we have to realize that we are needy sinners with nothing but our sin in Jesus. And he's everything. May you know that this morning. Not the righteous, not the righteous. Sinners Jesus came to call. Amen.